0: As we step into the new year, how many of you have made a New Year's resolution? Raise your hand. How many of you know better than to make a New Year's resolution? And that was your last year's resolution. I'm never doing this again. So as I was prayerful and the lead team was prayerful about stepping into the new year, I wanted to say that it wasn't just fasting and prayer that we, is normative for our church. But also I felt very drawn and even compelled to move us towards the study of a a book of the Bible. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be spending the next several weeks studying a letter to the Ephesians. And this morning's sermon is unashamedly going to be different than almost any sermon I brought before. And that is I want to give us the overview of the series that's coming and also i want to give us an overview of the book of ephesians and the goal of that is that you would exit this property and that you would have a hunger to read the book of the letter to ephesians yourself that you would be open to understanding what it is and what god wants to say to us through this letter so here we go are you ready let's try that again are you ready If you were to look in the Bible, you would discover that there are books of the Bible, but there are also, some books are called letters. Some are even known as the epistles. I'm going to use the terminology of letter, that the Apostle Paul is the one that wrote the letter of Ephesians. It was a personal letter that he wrote to a church that he had planted And had pastored for about three years. Now in that, he writes this letter. And in order to understand any letter, there are certain things you need to know. Who wrote it? Who's the recipient of it? Why was the letter written? And what can we learn from it? I want to cover each of those this morning. And so again, this message is going to be an overview for the sermon series It's going to help us to have an understanding of where we're going and why. The first question always is, who wrote the letter? I've already let the cat out of the bag. The Apostle Paul. Now, I would say this. It does matter, though, that we understand some things about Paul, and that's where we're ready to go. I wanted to say, too, that there are times where I have received letters serving as the pastor of city. They're wonderful. My favorite are written by children. Here's why: They always tell me how awesome I am. <laughs> you ever notice that about kids? If you get a letter, it's because, man, you are the best. I love you, Pastor Pete. I've never met the kid. But it's just so awesome to get that. Now. If I get a letter from someone that I know, someone that I have journeyed with, someone that we've gone through hard times with and good times with, when I get a letter from them, it has a whole different level of meaning. How many of you know what I'm talking about? That's the letter of Ephesians that Paul writes. So what we need to do, though, is we need to talk a little bit about the Apostle Paul. We need to talk about him because... What he's going to do in this letter is absolutely stunning. What's stunning about it is the simplicity of it, but also how much ground he covers. So as we look at this letter, the question becomes, who is the Apostle Paul? We meet him out of nowhere in the book of Acts. He just suddenly erupts on the scene at the end of Acts chapter 7. We find him standing, holding the coats of men who are stoning to death the disciple by the name of Stephen. That's our introduction. It just says there was a young man by the name of Saul and he was holding the coats of the men that stoned the disciple Stephen to death. That's how we meet him. He comes out of nowhere. What we also know, according to the Bible, is that... As the stoning is taking place, it says in Acts chapter 8, 1, it says, and Saul approved of their killing him. So it almost appears as though Saul was somehow some type of a leader. Here he is holding the coats and he's approving of Stephen being stoned to death. Then we pick up his name again in Acts chapter 8, verse 3. And it says, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and, what does it say next? That's shocking. It's so shocking it makes the Newer Testament. That the men weren't good enough. He wanted everyone. It does not mention children. But you can get the sense of it that Saul is so filled with hatred towards the church that he's grabbing parents and leaving children without their parents, and he's hauling them off to prison. Then when we pick him up again, it's in Acts chapter nine, verse one. And it says, meanwhile Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That's where we meet him in chapter nine, verse one. Here he is. Can you imagine what it would sound like to breathe murderous threats? He breathes in, and when he breathes out, he's going, I'm going to kill these people. Breathe in, breathe out. That's how he's living his life. And then Acts chapter 9 is stunning. You take a man that is wired like this, and suddenly he is on the road to Damascus, He has a letter in his pocket from the Sanhedrin, those that run the Jewish faith, and they have given him permission to go house to house in Damascus because he's heard there are Christians there, and he's going to arrest all of them, haul them back to Jerusalem, and put them in prison. So here he is on the road, and although some of you think Paul was on horseback, that's not what the Bible says. It just says he's on the road. When he's on the road, suddenly the Bible says a light literally surrounds him. Acts chapter 9. And the voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's response is, who is this Lord? And the response is, I am Jesus. I'm Jesus. And what ends up happening next is still stunning to me. Because of that encounter with the risen Christ, Saul cannot see. He is blinded and for three days he can't see and he's led by the hand. And he's taken back into an area where there are some Christians. And one of the Christians comes to pray for him. And the only reason why he'll he'll even come and pray for Saul is because the Lord appears to this disciple and tells him, you've got to go do this. And if you read this in Acts chapter 9, the guy goes, "Uh, Jesus, do you know who Saul is? Are you sure about this? He's been persecuting us. This guy Saul has been killing us. He's been hunting us down. Jesus, are you sure? And here's what Jesus says. You need to go pray for him because I'm going to show him how much he will suffer for my name. That's not punitive. It's about Saul's calling that Jesus is going to place on his life. And here's what I want to tell you. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus and you are looking over the wall of Christianity and you've got friends that follow Jesus, maybe they even invited you here this morning, I want to tell you categorically that do not believe what all preachers tell you. That because you follow Jesus that your life will be rosy and everything will be grand. You're going to become wealthy and you're going to live the blessed life in the sense of the American dream. The Newer Testament never says that. But what it does say is when you follow Jesus you will find a purpose that will drag you into heaven. You will find a reason to get up in the morning, and you will find a peace that passes all understanding. That's what you will find. Now, have I been happy following Jesus? Yes. But it's uniquely positioned where the moment that Saul is going to be released of his blindness, Jesus says he's going to suffer. But if you read Paul's writings, he never complains about it. Actually, it's fascinating. He boasts about his sufferings. It's incredible to me. Now, one of the things he boasts about is called sleepless nights. He says, I was near stoned to death three times. I was left shipwrecked. I was thrown overboard. He names all these things. And in the midst of it, he says, sleepless nights. How many of you know that sleepless nights are horrible? I've just had five in a row. I've been up coughing half the night and I'm sitting there coughing in my bed and I'm thinking the Apostle Paul, it's you and me, man. You and me, we're in this together, buddy, sleepless nights. But that's what the Bible explains to us. What is even more fascinating, though, is how the Apostle Paul views himself. He views himself so uniquely. Now, you and I call him an apostle. Apostle. And he is. But in explaining his apostleship to the church of Corinth, here's how he explains himself. He says, Last of all, he, meaning Jesus, he says, Last of all, Jesus appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Remember that phrase. Paul says he was abnormally born. He says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Isn't that shocking? Paul says, I am an apostle. I shouldn't be one, because I was out there killing Christians. But he goes on to say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Stunning. A guy that wrote 12 books of the Newer Testament had killed Christians. And yet Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. And following that Damascus Road experience, we know that the Apostle Paul goes through years of discipleship, years of understanding who Jesus is. And then he comes out in public ministry. And when he does, God uses him tremendously. But here's what he says about his own calling. I don't deserve it because I was persecuting the church, but because of the grace of God, I am what I am. I am what I am. Can you imagine having the Apostle Paul as your pastor? Can you imagine? You come up to Paul and you say, Hey, Paul, I feel so ashamed. And he says to you, Tell me about it. You confess your sin. And he says, that's nothing. I killed Christians. Beat that. (laughs) And then on top of that, he says, okay, now let's confess your sin. All right, let's confess it. Let's repent of what we've done. Let's repent. Now let's accept the forgiveness of God. Let's accept the forgiveness of God. And then the next time you show up and you go into confession, you mention the same thing. The Apostle Paul would go, time out. We already dealt with this. You already prayed and asked God to forgive you. Why is it that you're still stuck in this? It's because you don't understand the grace of God. That's one thing we're gonna learn about in the book of Ephesians is the grace of God. Now when we look at this, Paul is able to say, I am an apostle by the grace of God even though I persecuted the church. I am what I am by God's grace. And here's what I wanna tell you. I say the same as your pastor If I told you my sins, which no, I'm not going to, but if I told you my sins and you met any pastor who was honest, it's all by the grace of God. And the least of our sins is we only work one day a week. (laughs) The next question becomes, who are the Ephesians? So the apostle Paul's this apostle who is called by God. And by the way, this is important to understand. That an apostle is someone who had to have met Jesus as resurrected. You had to be a first-hand witness of the resurrection. All the other apostles had also walked with Jesus prior to his death, burial, and resurrection. Not only that, you had to have a unique, specific call from Jesus to you personally to go out and spread the gospel. Those are the two things that qualified you as an apostle. That's why Paul said he was abnormally born. Because he had not walked with Jesus when Jesus was here in the flesh. He had not been there at the resurrection of Jesus on Easter morning. He had not been there in the following days when Jesus appeared to so many people in resurrected body. No, he meets Jesus a long time later on the road to Damascus, but he meets the resurrected Christ. And then Jesus called him to go preach the gospel. That's why Paul declares that he is an apostle, but one that was abnormally born. We need to understand that because that's going to come up in the weeks ahead. So the next thing, though, is who are the Ephesians? Who are they? Paul's writing a letter to them. I've already mentioned that the apostle Paul pioneered the church of Ephesus. He was there as their pastor for a couple of years. And you can read about this in Acts chapter 17, 18, and 19. It's amazing that we've got this letter that he writes, and then we actually read about him pastoring the church in the book of Acts. It's incredible. But what do we know about the city of Ephesus and the Ephesian people? Here's what we know they're wealthy, they're rich. Ephesus is a seaside port. Roman wealth is flowing like a river. Not only this, but it's a well-developed Roman city. They have a 25,000-seat amphitheater in which there's constant public entertainment. We also know, because of the excavation of the ruins of Ephesus, we know that one of the seven wonders of the world was built there it was to the temple of it was a temple built to the goddess god artemis who was also known as the goddess diana now because of little ears in the room we're not going to go into any great detail about diana but just suffice it to say that one of the central parts of that cult and that ritual and worshiping her as a god was a meteorite, a black meteorite that had fallen from heaven. And it had multiple small bumps on it that looked like a part of the certain part of the female anatomy. That became the center of the worship of Diana. This meteorite was put inside of that temple and was worshiped. And so picture this the Apostle Paul shows up and he steps into this community and there was a synagogue there so there were Jews but there was primarily Gentiles, Gentiles being non-Jews and the Apostle Paul shows up in Ephesus and what he does, he begins to preach the gospel. And the Bible says clearly he spent over two years in the synagogue preaching every single day that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he was dead, buried, and resurrected on the third day. And because of that, if you put your faith, hope, and trust in him, you have forgiveness of sins, and you, through Christ, will find that death has been conquered in you as well. Two years. And the Bible tells us, as you kind of move down through Acts chapter 18, that after these two years or so, that almost everyone in the region had heard the gospel. Paul was the Billy Graham of Ephesus. But then if you were to look in Acts chapter 19, something interesting happens. And that is, is that there's now so much traction, and Paul's preaching is so famous that one of the people that makes idols, they're making this orb or they're making this idol of this goddess Diana with this multiples of this upper level women's anatomy on it. And they're making these idols and they're selling them at a massive profit. Because all of a sudden the gospel's getting traction the leader of the idolatry factory, the factory for idols, basically stands up and leads the guild and they go down and create a riot. And in creating this riot, they begin to announce that the apostle Paul declares that Jesus Christ is Lord and that these gods are nothing but wooden stone. They're worthless. They cannot help you. And so these guys, realizing they're gonna lose all of their profit, they lead a riot against the apostle Paul What ends up happening in Acts 19 there in Ephesus is Paul, who always wants to get in front of people and proclaim the gospel, says, let me at them. I want to go in front of them. I want to preach the gospel to them. But those brothers and sisters in Christ hold us back, hold him back. And look, being blunt, there have been times in my own ministry, I didn't have the boldness of Paul, trust me, but I had great people around me that when I said, hey, here's what I think I ought to do, they'd said, that's really stupid. You ever have people be the voice of God for you too? So they basically say to Paul, we're not gonna let you go out there. And as a matter of fact, they smuggle him out of the city to save his life. He moves on, and begins to plant churches elsewhere. I love that about Paul. He just keeps going. But you see at the time of the writing of this letter, The letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is now in prison for his faith. He's in Rome, and he's writing letters to churches that he's pastored. But the question then has to be, what is Paul's purpose for the writing of this letter? Well, here's what's amazing. This letter is very unique than the other letters that he has written, even the other prison epistles or prison letters that he writes while he's in prison. It's very different. He just simply announces himself in Ephesians chapter one. In announcing himself in Ephesians one, he just essentially says, listen, I'm the Apostle Paul. Usually he greets other people, but he doesn't this time. He just simply says, I'm the Apostle Paul. Here's the other unique thing. There's no problem in the church. That would be how it would be if he wrote a letter to City Church. There wouldn't be any problems at all. You see, in the other churches, there were huge problems. Man, if you read the First and Second Corinthians, there's nightmare stuff going on in the church. None of that happens at City Church. None of it. He would have written a letter to our church like he did to Ephesus. But here's what's incredible he writes a letter that's split into two parts. The first part is about who Jesus is. Chapter, chapter, chapter. Here's who Jesus is. And more importantly, here's who you are in him. The remaining chapters are about what that looks like to walk it out. It's so simple. It's to the Ephesian church here's who Jesus is, here's what it looks like to walk it out. It's good stuff. It's important stuff. It's simple stuff. But what Paul does to me is very fascinating. He's so Jewish. He's a rabbi. He was also a Pharisee of all Pharisees. He helped to lead the Jewish faith out of Jerusalem. And as a Jew, Jews believe in prayers. They believe that prayers not only touch God, but reveal the heart of the person praying. And so there are two prayers that Paul prays in his letter, and he writes the prayers out for the church of Ephesus. And I would like us to read both of those before we close. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 It's going to be up on the big screen. I'd like for you to read it out loud with me as I read it here. Let's read. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he called you, the riches of his glory, inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now I want you to let that prayer settle in because I'm going to make this commitment to you from this day on for the next eight weeks I'm gonna pray every single day this prayer over the City Church family. Every single day. Because I think Paul knew Jesus better than I do. I think he was a better passer than I am. He was an apostle, I'm not. So I think his prayer's worth praying. But you know, as I've looked at his prayer, something struck me. It actually made me kind of chuckle. And his prayer says this. He says, I pray that the eyes of your what? Heart, Heart, not your head. Your heart. That's a weird picture, isn't it? Eyes in your heart. Now the truth of it is, my eye docs, they're married, they go to city church. And recently I went to get classes (coughs) for the very first time. Well, that's not true. I got them somewhere else before, but... I went there to get glasses and I walk in and I sit down and my friend from city does my eye exam and he said, you should have been here a long, long time ago. I said, okay. Anyway, I sit there and he begins to explain to me how the eye works, why he's doing the tests that he's doing and all the above. Now, he's a great eye doctor, so is his wife, but here's what I can promise you. If you go to their eye care facility, they don't have a single pair of glasses for the eyes of your heart. They don't have them. That's what Paul prays for. He prays that the eyes of people's hearts can see. What a profound thought that there's a way in which as a follower of Jesus that our hearts begin to open up and we can see stuff that we cannot see with our natural eyes. That's gonna be my prayer. The other thing that Paul prays in this prayer is absolutely profound to me. He says that he is praying that we would come to understand the incomparably great power for those who believe. There's this power in Jesus that can't be compared. You can't get it anywhere else except for in Christ. And the truth of it is, when I think about power, you're going to have to forgive me, but I'm kind of a guy's guy. And when I think about power, I think about blowing stuff up. How many of you men know exactly what I'm talking about? That's what I think about. And so when I think about that prayer, it's kind of like, well, what did he mean? How do we understand what he means by this incomparable great power? Well, I'm gonna tell you something fascinating about all of Paul's letters. He will state things and then explain them later. So let's look at the next explanation. Let's read Ephesians 3:17 through 19. Here's what the scriptures say. <coughs> Read it with me if you would. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. You see, the incomparable great power that Paul's praying for is not some kind of power to blow stuff up. He's talking about this incredible power that will allow Pete Hartwig to understand the depth of God's love for me through Jesus. That's the purpose of it. Notice he doesn't say it's power to go heal stuff, it's not power to raise the dead. It's not power to do things that I love to have the sense that the Newer Testament says any one of us can do. But Paul's primary concern in the book of Ephesians is that you and I would have God's power so that we could understand how much God loves us. And here's what I know. Some of you sitting here do not believe God loves you. You don't believe it. You believe God loves everyone else but you. You believe that you're the exception to the rule. It was no different in Ephesus. Paul knows this. He had pioneered the church. He had pastored those people. And now his prayer is, is that they would literally have the power of God so that they would be able to understand how much God loves them In Christ. And notice this that love surpasses knowledge. It's not something that we come to by knowing, it's something that we come to by what Paul prays elsewhere, and he calls it in the book of Ephesians the spirit of revelation. There's this sense where I'm going to pray for everyone who calls city their home, even those that only come when the lilies and poinsettias are out. That we would have the incomparable great power of God and that a spirit of revelation would come upon us so that we as a group of people would understand the love of God through Christ to us. So the question has to be, how do we put feet to our faith? What does it look like as we move towards the next several weeks, as we're going to methodically go through the book of Ephesians? What does it look like? How can I participate? Well, I want to encourage you. I'm going to ask that you would read Acts chapter 9. That you would read Acts chapter 19. That's the story of Paul coming to faith in Jesus. Acts chapter 19 is about him pioneering the church in Ephesus. Then I'm also going to ask that you would join me in praying Paul's prayers. It's Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17 and following and Ephesians 3 verse and following. That you would join me in praying for others but also for yourself. That what Paul prayed 2,000 years ago for the church of Ephesus would be true for you and for me. The other thing I want to encourage you to do is join us in fasting and prayer. That you would take that step. Maybe you've never been a person that's fasted and prayed before. I want to encourage you to do that. But here's what I want to encourage you to do while you fast and pray because Jesus teaches this. He says, when you fast... Don't go around looking glum. Don't go around going, oh, I'm so hungry. And then your workers that work with you go, are you okay? And you go, no, 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 no. I'm just fasting and praying and asking God to do great things. No, you don't do that. The Bible says, wear your deodorant, use your mouthwash, brush your teeth, take a bath. And when you fast and pray, do it in secret. It's what the Bible says. Do it in secret. We don't do this for our glory. We do it for the glory of Jesus. And that our hearts and our lives as we step into 2019 would be open, incredibly open. And that the eyes of our heart would begin to see who Jesus is. And my parting thought is so key this. The reason why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter was so that the people of Ephesus who followed Jesus would know where their identity is found. Every one of us has found our identity somewhere. Yet Paul's intent for this letter is in two parts. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what it looks like to follow him. Here's what you and I have in Jesus. Here's what he provides for us. Here's what it looks like to walk that out. And ultimately, what he's talking to the church of Ephesus about is identity. Who am I in Christ? And he repeats the phrase, in Christ Jesus, in this book over and over and over again. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to discover together what it looks like to be in Christ and to find our identity in him because some of us have found our identity elsewhere and the payoff has not been what we were told it would be. But in Jesus, you'll find it completely fulfilled. Would you please take a moment to stand with me? stand together. We're going to pray. And as we pray, we're going to ask the Lord to touch us. And then we're going to worship for a few moments, and then the pastoral blessing. Dear God, help us to have your incomparable great power so that we can know the love of God for us through Jesus. God, I'm praying over those of us that this is the beginning of a journey. Some of us, we've never read a book of the Bible before. It's the beginning of a journey. For some of us, we're not yet choosing to follow Jesus. It's the beginning of a new journey. For others of us, we've journeyed for years. Help it to be fresh for all of us. And in the midst of this, let the eyes of our heart be open to the inheritance that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.